Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 1202. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, part 9. This is being recorded on September 3rd of the year 2021. Before we get into the subject material, there are three links at the top of each program description and each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments that are made, most of them by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal, that's P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L, and also relevant comments made by other listeners. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcast that is being made by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, there is a link for you to click on, again, at the top of each program description and at the top of each uh, Food for Thought post. And last, but most assuredly not least, uh, there is also a link which will enable you to uh, obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my 42 years of work on the air, plus a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. There will be a new updated flash drive before too much longer, sometime this fall. Now, we are going to continue with a discussion of key elements of the history of modern China, and in particular, the, as I have titled this series, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. Uh, we're hearing nonstop about the competition with China and all the uh, terrible things China is being alleged to do. Uh, that entire state of affairs grew out of events in the early 20th century and the mid-20th century, and we are talking about the foundation of those following the Chinese Revolution of 1911, in which Dr. Sun Yat-sen overthrew the Manchu Dynasty, or Qing Dynasty, Q-I-N-G, as it is also called. Uh, there was a revolution in China, and the Kuomintang split into right and left-wing factions. The left-wing faction was associated primarily with uh, Moscow and communism, and the right-wing faction was uh, not only fascist, doctrinaire fascist, but was really, a, in effect, a front for the powerful forces of the drug-dealing Green Gang Cartel out of Shanghai. There also was involved in the uh, Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek the very powerful Sung clan, S-O-O-N-G. He was also a very important member of the Sung family who had married Dr. Sun Yat-sen and then became his widow. Her politics were left of center. She eventually became uh, anointed with a number of positions by the Chinese Communist Party, but uh, she did not actually join the party for many, many years because uh, she was seen, uh, to have her join the party, was seen as uh, basically corrupting the legacy of Dr. Sun Yat-sen. The, the actual Chinese Communist Party is far more nuanced than we are uh, being led to believe. Uh, and also, uh, 
Madam Sun Yat-sen, nee Ching Ling Sung, was uh, opposed to both Chiang Kai-shek and the Communist Party for many years. And time permitting, we will get into her uh, development of a third force in China in the late 1920s. Uh, that third force or third option, as it is known uh, with the full name, the Ting Yen Ta, came to a predictable uh, fate. Uh, Ching Ling Sung, again, uh, eventually Madam Sun Yat-sen and her, uh, his widow, was a remarkable person. But the rest of the family, uh, Ailing Sung, the eldest sister who was a real Machiavellian figure. She was sort of a Chinese Lucretia Borgia. She married H. H. Kung, the chief uh, financier, uh, for many, many years the uh, financial wizard of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. Uh, her brother, T. V. Sung, was for many years the richest man in the world, also a finan- finance minister of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's regime and held other posts as well. He also was a very powerful American tycoon with tremendous investments in the U.S. and in Latin America and elsewhere. There was also his younger brother, T.L. Sung, and another brother, T.A. Sung, Mei-Ling Sung, his sister, uh, married Chiang Kai-shek and became Madam Chiang Kai-shek. It was a very powerful family with tremendous clout on uh, both sides of the Pacific Ocean, particularly in the U.S. Uh, if it seems to some people that this is not relevant or particularly for younger listeners, you know, well, it was a long time ago. This is not only the foundation of what we are seeing in the new Cold War, but really so much of American uh, power structure and the key dynamics of the 20th and 21st century evolved from these events. Uh, we're going to speak, for example, briefly about the guy named Joseph Alsop, who became the administrator for Lend-Lease in the Chongqing area. He also was a key journalist, uh, an advocate for Chiang Kai-shek, and uh, he, during the Cold War, became a very influential journalist and was inextricably linked with the Central Intelligence Agency. There is a famous article from Rolling Stone magazine from 1977 that was authored by Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame, and it begins with an account of Joseph Alsop's work with the CIA. We're going to be talking about the genesis of the John Birch Society in this series, and uh, the whole issue of, quote, who lost China, unquote, which is a topic that we will be uh, getting into to a certain extent in this program and uh, in our next program to a much greater extent, became one of the battle cries of the McCarthyite left during the Cold War. And I would recall, I remind listeners that Joe McCarthy's chief legal attack dog, his assistant counsel, was none other than Roy Cohen, who was not only the attorney for but the political mentor of Donald Trump. And uh, the issue of, quote, who lost China and uh, the battle cry of the China lobby uh, in many ways manifested not only journalistically by Henry Luce's empire, but also by the songs, as we will see, uh, became a, a primary element of Cold War propaganda and debate. So, again, if it 
seems like some of this is long ago. It certainly is quite some time ago, particularly for younger listeners. However, these are very important dynamics, and much of the world as it is, particularly the U.S. and parts of Asia like uh, Taiwan, uh, evolved directly from these events. We were talking in our last program about the uh, antipathy felt by American combat personnel towards Chiang Kai-shek, whereas Chiang Kai-shek and the powerful Sung clan clan with which he was allied were viewed uh, almost as minor deities in the U.S., and the doctrinaire anti-communism of Chiang Kai-shek endeared him to the American power elite. Uh, Many American combat personnel did not share that illusion, and they loathed Chiang Kai-shek. We talked about uh, Pappy Boyington, a decorated flyer who flew and fought first with the American volunteer group, a.k.a. the Flying Tigers of World War II fame. Uh, he despised Chiang Kai-shek and eventually re- resigned from the Flying Tigers because he was, as he put it, unwilling to die in a P-40 for an absolute tyrant. He went on to become a decorated Marine Corps flyer. There was a somewhat uh, fanciful primetime television series about him called Ba Ba Black Sheep with the late Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boyington in the series. And uh, when the Army Air Corps flyers who were uh, flying over the hump, as it was known, flying the dangerous air supply route over the Himalaya mountains, uh, discovered the luxury goods that Madame Chiang Kai-shek and they, Mei Ling Sung, had in her, their, her luggage that they were going to fly. They were outraged because, again, many of them were losing their lives to fly this route, and the notion that they were going to be flying luxury goods for uh, a sort of uh, Asian political duchess, so to speak, a political royalty of the Kuomintang, uh, basically outraged them. It was Chang's determination to husband his military resources to use against the Chinese communists, both during the actual World War II combat itself and afterward, and in fact the collaboration between many of the Kuomintang generals and at times Chiang Kai-shek, and in particular the Green Gang with the occupying slash invading Japanese, was a major bone of contention between Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang generals, who were, as we have seen, evolved from the Wampo Military Academy, which was dominated by the Green Gang, and uh, the result was that the officer corps and the general staff of the Kuomintang were at the same time officers and also gangsters of the Green Gang. Uh, General Joseph Stillwell, who was in charge, he was the senior military officer in charge of the China Burma fever, hated Chiang Kai-shek's guts because he was basically uh, a lousy uh, ally, as uh, uh, General Stillwell put it, and I'll find uh, the exact quote here. I read it into the record uh, in our last program, but uh, might as well read it one more time because we're going to be talking about the schism 
that evolved between the State Department and what was then called the War Department, uh, now the Defense Department. Uh, the Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, was supportive of General Stilwell. However, the State Department and allied interests, such as General Claire Chenault of the Flying Tigers, Joe Alsop, the Sung family's allies, and many of the members of the State Department who uh, were only interested in Chang's anti-communism and could care less about uh, the fact that his regime was corrupt, tyrannical, unpopular, etc. General Stilwell said of Chiang Kai-shek, quote, He's a vacillating, tricky, undependable old scoundrel who never keeps his word, unquote. That was an accurate assessment of Chiang Kai-shek. It could almost uh, be called uh, reserved in its criticism. And uh, that, however, uh, led General Stilwell to hate Chiang Kai-shek's guts. He basically said the only difference between Chiang Kai-shek and Mussolini was that Mussolini was better at what he did than Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, he might also have added that Mussolini was not, uh, that I'm aware of anyway, a drug dealer. And as we have seen, uh, the Green Gang and Chiang Kai-shek was a functionary of that, a protege of Big Ear Tua Tuyu Sheng, the most powerful man in China, and the head of the Green Gang, they were drug dealers. Narcotics, smuggling, and trafficking was the foundation of Chiang's regime. Uh, I'm not aware of any such thing with Mussolini. What we're going to be talking about again in this program is not only the schism between the State Department, who uh, basically liked, for the most part, like Chiang Kai-shek and the War Department, which uh, sided with General Stilwell. And there were key elements of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration who also were taken in by Chiang. Generally, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, did not do a very intelligent job with Asia. There were people uh, like Tommy the Cork, Corcoran, and others who uh, basically uh, were more uh, corporatist and fascist in orientation uh, than they were practical. Plus, uh, Roosevelt was treading on uh, perhaps uh, thin ice. Uh, his full name was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Delano family were involved with the Chinese opium traffic. So uh, he had a, 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 a checkered history, shall we say, uh, family history with China. We are going to be once again using a remarkable book. Uh, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Sadly, it is out of print. It would be great if someone would uh, republish it. But the book is called The Sung Dynasty, that is S-O-O-N-G, by Sperling Seagrave. We will also be using, and we have already to a certain extent, use, uh, used Sterling and Peggy Seagrave's Gold Warriors later on in our series. The book was published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe. There was also a softcover edition that is available. And what we're going to note here is, again, the schism between the War Department and the State Department, uh, the eventual deep-sixing of General Stilwell, who hated Chiang Kai-shek's guts. He was supported by elements in the War Department, but the State Department didn't like him, and it turns out that the many 
State Department officers who knew the truth about Chiang Kai-shek and were warning the U.S. government that uh, basically he was going to get, uh, he was going to be turned out of power by the communists who were fighting the Japanese very effectively and uh, who were winning the hearts and minds, so to speak, of the Chinese people as a result. They were not listened to, and it turns out that people in the State Department who uh, received the communications from these China hands, uh, people like Jack Service, S-E-R-V-I-C-E, and others, uh, were turning the memorandum that they sent over to members of the Sung family who uh, basically helped to steer American policy uh, toward Chiang Kai-shek. Turning once again to the Song Dynasty, American officials were not interested in whether Chang violated human rights and ruled by charade. Washington, not as represented by Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall, but as typified by FDR's political advisor Harry Hopkins, increasingly shared Chang's fixation with the post-war threat of communism. To please the Generalissimo and his supporters in Washington, to please the Generalissimo and his supporters in America, the Washington of Hopkins and the Department of State was prepared to sacrifice any number of its own people. America failed to understand the trap it was falling into because the State Department was not listening to its China watchers. Very few of their secret reports actually reached the Secretary of State because the rest were being intercepted by partisans inside the department hierarchy. Although the Secretary of State was not reading them, the Chinese were. According to information gathered by the FBI at the time, someone high in the State Department was passing this secret information straight over to China Defense supplies to be read by T.V. Sung and to be acted upon as he saw fit. So the Americans sent to China to watch Chang's regime were reporting to the Sung family, not to President Roosevelt. At the War Department, the situation was quite different. General Marshall was suspicious of Chang and listened to General Stilwell's warnings. But it was difficult to persuade FDR to share this suspicion. The president's ear was monopolized by politicals like Harry Hopkins and the China cronies around Tony Corcoran and T.V. Sung. There were now so many well-connected people muddling things up that no rational discussion of China could take place. Joseph Alsop added his considerable skill to the confusion of matters on the spot in Chongqing. First, Alsop had himself posted to China as General Chenault's press aide, unquote, in charge of public relations. Then, when he was captured by the Japanese in Hong Kong and later repatriated, Alsop used his influence to get a new assignment as a Lend-Lease representative in Chongqing, where he threw his weight again into the campaign to destroy General Stilwell. Parenthetically, as we have seen, uh, 
It was T.B. Sung's brother T.L. Sung, later a key and very secretive post-war Treasury Department agent, but it was T.L. Sung who was in charge of the Chinese end of the U.S. land lease program. Eventually, he was put, he was sent to the other side of the Pacific Ocean, and he was in charge of the American side of the Lend-Lease operation. As we have seen an awful lot of America's Lend-Lease went directly into the hands of corrupt Chinese green gang generals. Uh, many of it was sold directly to the Japanese. And the Song family themselves uh, pocketed uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was in World War II dollars of Lend-Lease aid. We're going to talk more about that. In fact, T.V. Sung himself uh, had his fabulous wealth in considerable measure uh, augmented by, again, hundreds of millions of dollars in Lend-Lease supplies that were basically went into his pocket. We're going to read later about one shipment of 60 tanks and other military goods that supposedly went to China aboard a freighter that was sunk. And in fact, <laughs> there never was any shipment of tanks. All that money went right into T.V. Sung's pockets. And again, uh, T.L. Sung, his brother, was in charge of the Chinese side of Lend-Lease. Many of the generals working for Chiang Kai-shek were uh, trading the Lend-Lease goods to the Japanese and also using them for uh, black market. And again, um, the Sung family themselves were pocketing tremendous amounts of Lend-Lease. And Joe Alsop, the CIA-linked post-war slash Cold War journalist extraordinaire, uh, was the Lend-Lease representative in Chongqing, which was the World War II capital of the nationalist government. And he, along with General Claire Chenault of the Flying Tigers and later the uh, Army Air Corps, hated General Stilwell. Uh, we were speaking in our last program about General Tang and Po, uh, as corrupt and vicious and murderous a general as there was in the Kuomintang army, and one of the most powerful of the Kuomintang generals, uh, his forces melted uh, in the face of the 1944 offensive by the Japanese called Operation Ichigo, I-C-H-I-G-O. We're going to read about that and the uh, advocacy that Claire Chenault had for forward air bases for his air force, and General Stilwell's prediction, very accurate, that the Japanese would simply attack and destroy those bases. Defense of that front was uh, by Pang and Po's army, and he did not do a good job. Returning now to uh, the Song Dynasty. The Stilwell issue came to a head in 1944, right after the Japanese launched Operation Ichigo in eastern China. This was their first big drive since the capture of Wuhan in 1938. It was made necessary because American submarines had penetrated into Japanese home waters, interrupting the seaborne supply route used to maintain the conquered empire in Southeast Asia. Those Distant outposts were now short of materiel and vulnerable to Allied assault. Japan's only alternative supply route was the main north-south railway line in China, the capture of which had not been necessary before. 
At the same time, they plan to destroy the new forward air bases being established by General Chenault's 14th Air Force. Chenault had impressed FDR by boasting that his planes could sink a million tons of Japanese shipping if he had those forward bases and if he had the planes, and if Stillwell did not get the best part of the war supplies. These same bases, Chenault said, could be used for B-29s to strike at Japan's home islands. To the contrary, argued Stillwell, he predicted that the Japanese would simply destroy the bases. As usual, Stillwell was right. Fifteen Japanese divisions plus five other brigades struck in April of 1944, and the defending Chinese army of 300,000 men, parenthetically as we have seen, commanded by General Pang and Po, simply evaporated. Japanese units of as little as 500 men routed thousands of Chinese troops. The Chinese commanders commandeered trucks to flee with their families and possessions into the interior. Chenault claimed none of this would have happened if Stillwell had allowed enough Lend-Lease to go to those particular Chinese units. In truth, some of the armies in question were so lavishly provided with U.S. equipment that their commanders were selling it on the black market and to the Japanese as well. In places where the General Isano claimed that a bold defense was planned, Theodore White, the, the journalist, found only two ill-equipped regiments of dragooned peasant soldiers who were going to be sacrificed beneath a huge Japanese steamroller. White wrote, The men walked quietly with the curious bitterness of Chinese soldiers who expect nothing but disaster. They were wiry and brown but thin, their guns were old, their yellow and brown uniforms threadbare. Each carried two grenades tucked in his belt. About the neck of each was a long blue stocking inflated like a roll of bologna with dry rice kernels, the Chinese soldiers' only field rations. Their feet were broken and puffed above their straw sandals. Their heads were covered with birds' nests of leaves woven together to give shade from the sun and supposedly to supply camouflage. The sweat rolled from them, dust rose about them, the heat clutched the entire country, and giddy, glistening waves rose from the the rice paddies. When the battle began, it was soon over. Quote, all that flesh and blood could do the Chinese soldiers were doing, unquote, White wrote. They were walking up hills and dying in the sun, but they had no support, no directions. They were doomed, unquote. They were being led by General Pang and Po, whom we talked about in our last program. And it should be noted, though, that uh, when they did receive proper leadership, uh, the Chinese Fighting man proved that he could do the job, but they didn't do get to that proper leadership. And continuing now with uh, the Song Dynasty. With the loss of the airfields, General Chenault and Chang stepped up their efforts to make Stillwell the scapegoat. In June, when Vice President Henry Wallace arrived to spend several days in Chongqing, Stillwell was not around to speak on his own behalf. He was at the Burmese front, involved in a long, bloody drive on Mitkina, the biggest and most successful American military operation on the Asian mainland in all of World War II, and the only one that included American combat troops, 
Merrill's Marauders. For cosmetic reasons, the Generalissimo ordered all beggars rounded up, roped together, and sent far out of Chongqing. Vice President Wallace was taken in tow by T.V. Sung and Joe Alsop. Before the Vice President's ears had stopped ringing from the aircraft engines, they were being filled with all of Stilwell's alleged sins. At meetings of the Generalissimo, Wallace was successful in pressing him to allow a team of American observers to go to the Communist headquarters at Yenan. But Chang wanted pit for pat. When he drove Wallace to the airport to see him off, Chang pressed him in return to see that Stilwell was replaced by General Albert C. Wiedemeyer, a more agreeable and flexible man on Lord Mountbatten's staff in Delhi. By the way, that was done. And we are going to recap uh, some information that we looked at in AFA program number 11 in the fall of 1985 about General Albert Wiedemeyer. So Stilwell was at the request of uh, Chiang Kai-shek and people like Joe Alsop and General Chenault and the Sungs and the China lobby. He was replaced, and he was replaced by General Albert C. Wiedemeyer. We'll talk about him in a little bit. More about uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his demands. The Generalissimo also wanted Roosevelt to send out a new personal representative to replace the troublesome Ambassador Clarence Gauss, G-A-U-S-S. After reflecting overnight, Vice President Wallace sent the following report to the President from his next stop, Kunming. Quote, Chiang, at best, is a short-term investment. He does not believe that he has the intelligence or the political strength to run post-war China. The leaders of post-war China will be brought forward by evolution or revolution, and it now seems more likely the latter, unquote. Ironically, as political pressure against Stillwell increased in Chongqing, the War Department got more firmly behind him and urged Roosevelt to promote Vinegar Joe to four-star general and to insist that Chang put him in charge of all Chinese forces in China as well as in Burma and India. Quote, we are fully aware of the Generalissimo's feelings regarding Stillwell, said the Joint Chiefs memo to the President, but the fact remains that he has proven his case or contentions, but the fact remains that he has proven his case or contentions on the field of battle in opposition to the highly negative attitudes of both the British and the Chinese authorities. Thus prompted by his senior commanders, Roosevelt sent to Generalissimo a message saying that Stillwell was being promoted and urging Chang to put the entire Chinese army at Stillwell's command because, quote, the future of all Asia is at stake, unquote. Chang could not refuse outright, so he hedged, insisting that Roosevelt first send a special emissary to, quote, adjust, unquote, relations with Stillwell and give Chang time to get his armies accustomed to the idea of being commanded by an American. Before the matter could be settled, there was a brief Japanese attack along the Burma Road, and Chang became so nervous about the chance the Japanese might press all the way to Kunming that he threatened to withdraw all his soldiers from the Burma front to safety behind the Salween River. Roosevelt 
sent an urgent note to Chang warning that all U.S. aid would cease if Generalissimo withdrew his troops from Burma and if he did not give Stilwell overall command. The note from FDR, Stilwell realized, was a, quote, hot firecracker, unquote. Stilwell got an audience with Chang, quote, handed this bundle of paprika to the peanut and then sat back with a sigh. By the way, the peanut was one of Stilwell's nicknames for Chiang Kai-shek. Continuing, the harpoon, Stilwell is, uh, wrote, the harpoon hit the little bugger right in the solar plexus and went right through him, unquote. Chang was mortified and infuriated by Roosevelt's blunt demand. Putting Stilwell in charge of the Kuomintang armies raised questions that were political, not military, and would jeopardize the vast web of corruption on which Chang's survival depended. Stilwell's delight was premature. When the crunch finally came, Stilwell was not defeated by Chang, by Chinook, or by the Songs. He was defeated by Washington's refusal to trust its own observers in the field and by its predisposition to resolve Chinese dilemmas with Oklahoma logic. Stilwell was defeated by someone who knew nothing about China, by Roosevelt's new, quote, personal representative in China, Patrick Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y. He was a complete rude, skipping down. Major General Patrick J. Hurley carried a disproportionate amount of political weight. He was a tall, wealthy Oklahoman who had been Secretary of War in the Hoover administration, and FDR occasionally used him as a troubleshooter. His solution to handling the Chongqing snake pit was to play the fool with Choctaw war hoops, glad-handing the men he called Shanker Jack, a.k.a. Joseph Stilwell, and Moose Dung, Mao Zedong, and brandishing a loaded revolver in the face of an old China hand at the embassy when he filed memoranda that Hurley did not like. Hurley was the proverbial bull in the China shop. He sent a note to Roosevelt urging FDR to do what Chang wanted. From Hurley's simple-minded point of view, if it was a choice between Chang and Stilwell, then the only choice was Chang. Roosevelt, putting out of his mind everything he had been told by General Marshall and others, decided to let America's best rot at beginning again. Roosevelt, putting out of his mind everything he had been told by General Marshall and others, decided to let America's best America's bet ride on Hurley. He ordered Stilwell's immediate recall. Quote, the axe falls, unquote, Stilwell wrote in his diary. Now, as we have seen, the fellow who replaced him was Major General Albert Cody Wiedemeyer. And I'm going to recap some information that we used in AFA program of number 11, uh, dealing with the genesis of the John Burke Society, which again happened at, uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II in China uh, with the uh, conflict and eventual uh, killing of John Burke, who was the OSS 
that was World War II's American Intelligence, America's, it was World War II's American Intelligence Agency. John Birch was the OSS agent attached to General Chenault's uh, 14th Air Force, and in the immediate aftermath of World War II, he was recruiting Chinese puppet troops who had fought for the Japanese to fight for Chiang Kai-shek against the Chinese Communist Party when he traveled through a territory that was controlled by the communists. Uh, he got into a dispute with them and was killed. That was the genesis of the John Birch Society. And in uh, America, AFA program number 11, about the John Birch Society, we spoke about General Stilwell. And uh, he was basically uh, an interesting fellow. He had been chosen by Roosevelt to uh, be one of the principal architects of uh, the Rainbow Five mobilization program. And Rainbow Five uh, was basically the plan for uh, American mobilization for war against Nazi Germany. And it was made public illegally on December 4th, 1941, three days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, when Robert McCormick, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune and a fierce uh, opponent of Roosevelt and uh, a supporter of the America First uh, isolationist movement, which was financed in part by German intelligence, uh, the fellow who appears to have leaked the uh, Rainbow Five program was General Wiedemeyer, who had been involved in drawing it up. There was an actual officer who purloined it, but we're going to read about that. Now, General Wiedemeyer was uh, basically not only an, I quote, isolationist, unquote, with very strong roots in the Nazi-slash-German general staff. He also had strong links to the uh, isolationist and pro-fascist elements in the U.S. Of this, about this, we're going to uh, read from the book American Swastika, authored by Charles Hyam, the author of Trading with the Enemy. It was published by Doubleday and Company in hardcover in 1985 of the genesis of the Rainbow Fire program. On September 11, 1941, the Army summarized its estimate along with naval requirements in a secret joint report buttressed with appendices, maps, charts, tables, and secret data on strategic assumptions and purposes, potential military objectives and targets, and estimates of military strength. Known as Rainbow Five, this remarkable document, running to some 17 pages originally, but greatly expanded thereafter, called for an outright defeat of Nazi Germany in 1943, for which an appropriation of $150 billion would be required. U.S. Army ground forces would be required to a total of 216 divisions, 61 of them armored, 51 separate motorized divisions, and half a million men for anti-aircraft artillery units. It may be necessary to repeat that this was quite the most important single document in possession of the Chiefs of Staff and the White House. The architect of Rainbow Five was Brigadier General Leonard T. Gero, G-E-R-O-W, Chief of the War Plans Division. Secretary of War Henry Stimson had handed the responsibility to General Marshall, who in turn passed it to Giro. 
Giro selected as his instrument of execution of the victory program, Colonel Albert C. Wiedemeyer, later Major General Wiedemeyer, the guy who replaced Stillwell, who in the 1980s was to be resurrected from a military mortuary to serve as special military advisor to President Ronald Reagan. Colonel Wiedemeyer had an interesting history. His father's parents were born in Germany, and he himself had been educated in part at the German War College in Berlin. He rented his apartment in the German capital from a member of the Nazi party, Gerhard Rostock, and during his sojourn became a great friend of General Ludwig Beck, chief of the German general staff. By the way, Gerhard Rostock was the number two guy in the brown shirts, the German stormtroopers behind Ernst Rohn. And uh, again, uh, Wiedemeyer rented his apartment in the German capital from Rostock, again, the number two man in the brown shirts uh, after World War II, as we looked at in AFA Program 11. Gerhard Rostock went to work for the CIA. Uh, But Wiedemeyer Wiedemeyer's introductions to General Beck were arranged by Lieutenant General Friedrich von Bettiker, B-O-E-T-T-I-C-H-E-R, German military attaché in Washington. He corresponded regularly with his German contacts until the advent of World War II in Europe. He was friendly with Charles Lindbergh and acted as his interpreter in German uniform when the Lone Eagle visited various Nazi factories and army posts and he was a keen supporter of General Robert Wood, the head of America First. Rightly or wrongly, he was regarded by the German embassy in Washington as part of the pro-German military clique in the War Department. There is no question that Wiedemeyer was a convinced isolationist who sincerely believed that the United States was not obliged to commit itself to war on behalf of Great Britain. Wiedemeyer, in short, was, in his soul, opposed to the purpose expressed in the very victory program to which he was assigned. Five typewritten draft copies, meticulously numbered and registered, were sent by Wiedemeyer to Secretary of War Stimson, Assistant Secretary of War John J. McCoy, Chief of Staff George Marshall, and Chief of the War Plans Division Giro, with one copy retained by Wiedemeyer himself. In the meantime, the inevitable rumors flew around Washington of the existence of the program. Clerks had made mimeographed copies of the crucial document, and there is no record that they were subjected to a careful security check though they were strictly forbidden to examine the documents, one or other of them may have wanted to engage a listener in interesting conversation in the War Department canteen and given more than a hint of the contents. The numerous memoranda of Hans Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-E-N, and Bethlehem to Berlin at the time indicate that a series of contacts had been established in the American General Staff centering upon the War Department itself. Members of the group held meetings at the home of former American military attaché in Berlin, Colonel Truman Smith. Although pro-German and a sympathizer of America first, Smith had the ear of General Marshall. 
skipping down. In view of this continuous series of leaks at a high level, it is not surprising to note that on October 20th, 1941, Eugene M. Duffield, Washington staff correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, announced the very existence of the Victory Program in his column, although he proved unable to give details of it. On the night of December 3rd, 1941, an officer attached to the War Plans Division decided on his own account to consult some of the documents at home. It was a simple matter to unlock a steel cabinet and remove the large, expanding folder of several hundred pages. That he was not authorized to do so is indicated by the fact that he found it necessary to wrap the file in heavy brown paper to make it look like a parcel for mailing. And then this eventually was published by the Chicago Tribune. The Washington Bureau of the Chicago Tribune advised the Tribune's managing editor, J. Roy Maloney, that the hot story was about to come in. But when Maloney received Manley's version of Wheeler's leak of the Palimbo 5 plan, he felt uneasy. After all, to release a secret, a, after all, to release a state secret bordered on treason and was perhaps in breach of the existing Espionage Act of 1917. In view of his unease, Maloney felt he had to take the matter to his boss, Colonel Robert Rutherford McCormick, whom one wag dubbed the greatest mind of the 14th century. McCormick provided a willing audience. Tall, stern, immaculately tailored, the 61-year-old newspaper tycoon was one of Roosevelt's most persistent critics in the Fourth Estate. His crusades against Roosevelt were quite inflammatory, couched in language more suitable for a fishwife than a a newspaper publisher. Skipping down. The story appeared on Thursday morning, December 4th, 1941, headed FDR's war plans. Goal is 10 million armed men have to fight in the American Expeditionary Force. Proposes land drive by July 1st, 1943 to smash Nazis. President told of equipment shortage. The story went on. A confidential report prepared by the Joint Army and Navy High Command by direction of President Roosevelt calls for American expeditionary forces aggregating 5 million men for a final land offensive against Germany and her satellites. It contemplates total armed forces of 10,045,658 men. One of the few existing copies of this astounding document which represents decisions and commitments affecting the destinies of peoples throughout the civilized world became available to the Tribune today. It is a blueprint for war on a total scale unprecedented in at least two oceans and three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. And after talking about disclaimers that there was no classified information, uh, Charles Hyam writes, these disclaimers are erroneous. The information supplied to McCormick and the Chicago Tribune was indeed classified top secret, and its release was a matter of the gravest danger to national security. This was three days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
On the morning of the story's publication, the War Department was in an uproar. Not a soul entered the building without a copy of the Washington Times Herald gripped firmly in his hand. Apparently, the only personage in the entire government who had failed to read the paper on that fatal day was Albert C. Wiedemeyer, who walked into the munitions building at 7.30 a.m. to find his secretary, greatly agitated, handing him a copy of the paper. The hubbub of conversation around him emanating from a score, a score or so of high-ranking army officers ceased abruptly as he scanned the pages. Every eye was upon him. He was horrified by what he read. He was still more distressed when his secretary started to cry and the atmosphere became charged with suspicion. After all, he was the only man in that room with contacts with America First, Lindbergh, the German Embassy, and isolationist Senator Burton K. Wheeler. Wasn't it likely that he was responsible for the leak? However, he was somewhat mollified when his superior, General Giro, assured him of his complete support. Quote, J. Edgar Hoover had already been instructed by the President to investigate this matter, Giro said. Quote, you have my complete confidence. The breach of security is not a matter of guilt in the War Plans Division. Of that, I assure you, I am certain. Assistant Secretary of War John J. McCloy took a different view. Indeed, he summoned Wiedemeyer to his office, and instead of suggesting he sit down, shouted, uh, shouted at him, quote, There's blood on the hands of the man who did this, unquote. However, he did not quite bring himself to charge Wiedemeyer directly with an act of treason. He simply announced that when the guilty person was discovered, he would be court-martialed. Back in his office, Wiedemeyer faced a very unpleasant situation. Wiedemeyer had dispatched his number one man, Edward Tan, T-A-M-N, to the office, and Tan was standing by an open filing cabinet while Wiedemeyer's secretary was sobbing into her hands. One of Tan's men was holding a copy of the victory program. The same passages were underlined in red by Wiedemeyer as appeared in the newspapers. Very interesting coincidence, and uh, Charles Hyam goes on to comment. When Leonard Mosley, author of Marshall, Hero for Our Times, a biography of General George Marshall, interviewed Wiedemeyer in 1982 for the purposes of his book, Wiedemeyer gave an explanation of this. He said that he had looked at his copy of the plan before the FBI's visit, compared it with the newspaper's account, and underlined the passages appearing in both the plan and the newspaper. The problem was that he had stated elsewhere that he had not seen the paper that fatal morning before entering the War Department. No doubt, memory was failing him in old age. Uh, Terrible and uh, probably ironic slash tongue-in-cheek comment by Charles Hyam. Uh, worth noting again that, that uh, Wiedemeyer was taken out of the, what uh, Arthur Hyam called the military mortuary and became a special military advisor to Ronald Reagan. After, by the way, he got the medal of, Wiedemeyer got the medal of freedom. So this, again, is a very interesting 
person to be selected to replace General Joseph Stilwell. Obviously, the man had plenty of access contacts. He was an isolationist and may very well have been an outright traitor. Again, the Rainbow Five plan was highly classified, and it was leaked to the anti-Roosevelt Robert McCormick, who, again, one journalist had had, uh, termed the greatest mind of the 14th century. That, again, is a very, very interesting person to be selected to replace General Stilwell. But he was, and he then became the uh, commander, the top American officer in that theater for the remainder of the war. So it's nothing that, as we saw a few programs ago, there was a very strong pro-German, pro-Nazi faction within the Kuomintang of General Hans von Seyck, a top Hitler general, was a critical military advisor of Chang's anti-communist campaigns. As we looked at in AFA program number 11, a fellow named Louis Siefkin was a top military intelligence officer, at one point the top military intelligence officer in the Kuomintang. And if that doesn't sound Chinese, there is a reason Louis Siefkin was a high-ranking Gestapo agent. Uh, there was also a very important uh, uh, Luftwaffe flyer named Richard von Grime, who was also deeply involved as an advisor to Chiang Kai-shek's Air Force. So again, to have a guy like Albert Kobe Wiedemeyer uh, become uh, the replacement for General Stilwell is worth noting. And we're going to talk more about what happened to the China watchers, the State Department experts who had warned against Chiang Kai-shek and who had seen uh, the demise of the Kuomintang at the hands of the Chinese, by the way, uh, the Chinese communists, something, by the way, that uh, was predicted by T.V. Sung himself, as we saw a couple of programs ago. But talking now about uh Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Sun Yat-sen, the widow of Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who led the 1911 Chinese Revolution. She became alienated from both the Communist Party, which at this point in time, the late 20s, was oriented toward Moscow, and also by Chang's fascism. And Ching Ling Sung uh, tried to form, or she did form, a what was called a third force or a third option in China as an alternative both to the Chinese Communist Party and to the fascist Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek. And in this, she was allied with uh, Teng, T-E-N-G, Yentak, at the Y-E-N hyphen T-A, with whom she was speculated to uh, have be romantically involved. Anyway, you can imagine what happened to the Third Force. Turning now to uh, uh, the Song Dynasty, as one of Berlin's political exiles, Ching Ling devoted her time to the growing international anti-fascist movement and the anti-imperialist league with which she found common cause. She was elected honorary chairman of the league in December of 1927 and again 20 months later. Most important, the courageous Peng Ta was there in Berlin. Together, they worked out plans to organize a new third force in China, a movement that would provide an alternative both to Chang's reactionary Kuomintang 
and to the communists. And again, it was speculated by uh, Sterling Seagrave and others that uh, she was actually in love with uh, Ching Leng Sung, the widow of Sun Yat-sen. Madam Sun Yat-sen was in love with Peng Yen Ta. Uh, you can imagine what happened to the third force. With the third force underground, alive and going for a brief period, China again had an alternative to the Communist Party and the Nanking dictatorship. Surfacing from time to time, Peng publicly accused Nanking of betraying the people and becoming the tool of militarists, bureaucrats, landlords, and financiers. He also attacked the Chinese Communist Party for putting the interests of the Chinese peasantry second to those of the Kremlin. He called for a complete social upheaval supported by all the oppressed, quote, common citizens, unquote, to turn away from both capitalism and communism in favor of a socialist state. Working through Big Year 2, Chiang Kai-shek secretly arranged to have Peng Yan-ta arrested by the British and American police authorities inside the sanctuary of the International Settlement in Shanghai. Without bothering with formal charges, they tracked Peng to his sanctuary, took him into custody, and turned him over to the Nanking secret police. Chiang imprisoned him outside Nanking and had him tortured for many months. Ching Ling tried desperately to free him. She made repeated appeals. Although the story may be apocryphal, Agnes Smedley told Harold Isaacs that Ching Ling took the extraordinary step of going to Nanking herself to see her detested brother-in-law. Given an audience by the Generalissimo in his office, Smedley said, Ching Ling broke her own vow never to ask anything of Chang. She tried every appeal to the point of begging for Tang's life. Chang listened to her for a long time, without expression, without a word, till she was exhausted. Then, looking at her closely, he said simply, I ordered him put to death, unquote. Days earlier, on November 29, 1931, nearly a year after his arrest, Tang Yanta had been taken from his cell at Chang's command and was slowly strangled with a wire. The executioner was said to be famous for keeping victims alive for half an hour while he tightened his grip. In his office, Shang had remained silent while Ching Ling pleaded for a man already dead, enjoying the spectacle of her momentary vulnerability. Thus died the third force or third option between the fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese communists. And again, Peng Yanta was slowly strangled by an expert uh, who could strangle a, a victim with a wire and keep them alive for half an hour. Well, not atypical of what Chang did to those that he disliked. And that basically left uh, the Chinese political spectrum uh, split between the communists and the fascist Kuomintang, and ultimately the... Uh, Chinese communists who fought very successfully and vigorously against the invading Japanese and won the hearts and minds of the peasants, won the Civil War. What we're going to talk about in our next program is how that was forecast by uh, veteran China hands, China watchers in the State Department like Jack Service, and what happened to them, how they were frozen out. 
However, that will be in our next program. This concludes for the record program number 1202, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Part 9. This is being recorded on September 3rd of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.